This is The New Criterion. I'm James Pinero, Executive Editor. For us moderns, genius, sheer intellect has replaced heroism, virtue, philosophical wisdom, and sanctity as the highest perfection of human nature. Despite Leonardo's limitations as a producer of beautiful artifacts, what is blindingly obvious to every viewer of his work is that Leonardo was a genius. So writes my guest, James Hankins, in Being Leonardo, the lead feature in our December 2019 issue. Jim, welcome, and I should also say hello, since this is in fact the first time we've met in person. Thank you for inviting me. James Hankins is a professor of history at Harvard University. He has been writing for the New Criterion since June 2017. Being Leonardo is his fifth article for the magazine. Jim also has a new book out this month called Virtue Politics, Soulcraft and Statecraft in Renaissance Italy, and I look forward to hearing more about it. But first, the genius of Leonardo and the cult of genius of Leonardo both are on display this year with blockbuster exhibitions timed to the 500th anniversary of his death. The biggest is now on view at the Louvre and is the subject of your essay. I hope you will read a section of this feature for our audience. Yes, I'd be happy to. It's worth reflecting on the reasons why Leonardo has such appeal for the modern museum-going public. On straightforwardly artistic grounds, it's not obvious that his paintings offer great pleasure to the casual art lover. 500 years of toiling to find genius in them tends to obscure this fact. Elements of their composition can seem strained, jumbled, or incongruous, as in the case of the Virgin and Child with St. Anne, which has lovely and original rhythms but is awkward in the posing of its subjects. Raphael's greatest compositions, lively, fluent, graceful, and harmonious, are vastly superior to any produced by Leonardo. The latter's execution sometimes appears erratic, inexplicably careless. Leonardo certainly mastered the principles of vanishing point perspective, discovered in Florence in the 1420s, as drawings for his adoration of the Magi of 1480-81 show. Yet his Annunciation, completed only a few years before, in his mid-twenties, is strangely faulty in the application of those principles. Leonardo made careful studies of the proportions of the human body, most famously in his drawing Vitruvian Man, on view at the Louvre show. But in the mature portrait of Cecilia Gallerani, the subject's hand, caressing her pet ermine, is too large for the rest of her body, as though a drawing of the, that detail had been transferred to the portrait without resizing. Given his unsuccessful experiments with oils and the passage of time, it's hard to know what the original effects of Leonardo's colors are, but on the evidence of the pictures as they have survived, he was not a delicious colorist. Strange, jumbled, incongruous, erratic, careless, strangely faulty, not a delicious colorist. 
I may have never heard so many criticisms of Leonardo in one paragraph. You write that Leonardo was a genius, but did that genius come at the expense of other qualities? Well, yes, I believe that's the case, that he uh, was a perfectionist, a tremendous perfectionist, and there were some things that he did. I don't mean to to, uh, detract from Leonardo's greatness as an artist, but he was not great at everything. Most artists are not great at everything. Uh, And there's a tendency when you have a figure like Leonardo to think that everything he did must be wonderful. And I don't think that's the case. And I I admit in this paragraph that I just read, I was trying to uh, shake people up a bit and to uh, make them think a little more critically about a man who is usually not treated critically. Uh, But he was a perfectionist. As I say in the article, he painted with the tip of his brush, sometimes with just a couple hairs of the brush. And it took a long time for him to finish things. In fact, he rarely finished something, some of his paintings. Um, uh, The paintings are actually, I think, the most wonderful aspect of his artistic production. And when you look at the portrait of Cecilia Gallerani, which I just uh, dissed a bit, Um, It's really uh, uh, unmatched in terms of his ability to project the inner life of the the sitter. Uh, And when you look at his representation of skin and of eyes and of lips and of uh, uh, those sorts of details, it just is miraculous what he's done. On the other hand, he doesn't finish. (laughs) And... Uh, He uh, was famous for taking on commissions that he didn't finish, perhaps couldn't finish, maybe had no intention of finishing, but everybody wanted to have Leonardo painting. He was, in addition to being a great artist, as everyone knew, uh, he was also a wonderful courtier. He was very handsome, he was tall, uh, uh, when he entered the room you knew he was there, he was one of those people. Uh, He was very charming, Uh, he was very lovable, uh, very generous in his way. Uh, So people uh, enjoyed having him around. They loved to go to his studio and watch what he was doing. And they realized when they saw him drawing or or talking about his works that he was a genius. Uh, And Leonardo was a great talker. He was very good at selling his, if I may use that term, selling his ideas to uh, princely persons. And uh, for that reason, people enjoyed his company, enjoyed watching his mind work. I have colleagues like that at Harvard. I, I just like to watch their minds work. And Leonardo was, uh, was certainly a, a man who, who one could observe uh, with great profit and interest. Well, your essay is as much about Leonardo the artist as the genius that captivates us today and in his day. What accounts for his unparalleled contemporary appeal over, say, Raphael, once considered a co-equal member, as you write, of the holy trinity of high Renaissance artists along with Michelangelo? Well, I've been asking myself that for a long time. I, I teach these artists in my course on Renaissance Florence, and I have to uh, preface this by saying I'm not a uh, a member of the Art Historical Club. I don't have a degree in art history, but my degree is in history. 
I'm an historian. And I, but if you teach the Renaissance, you have to be a Renaissance man. I teach music, I teach architecture, I teach art. So uh, I have this question before me all the time. What is going to appeal to the Lumpen undergraduate? What are they going to understand or what are they going to uh, latch on to in the work of the past? And I've discovered over the years that they have a hard time with artists like, like Giotto or uh, Verrocchio uh, because they're uh, religious artists. They're artists that are communicating a message. They uh, are using the arts to, uh, to convert and to deepen the spirituality of the viewer. Um, but I'm contending in this article that Leonardo is not an artist like that. In fact, there's um, about half of his art is religious art and half of it's what I would broadly call courtly art. And the religious art does not seem to be trying to get inside the viewer's head and, and to deepen their spirituality or to teach some doctrine. And of course, we have this famous statement of Vasari that Leonardo, late in life, when he was uh, on the point of death, he decided to learn about the Christian religion, which is kind of an astonishing thing to say in the High Renaissance when religion is ubiquitous. So what does Vasari, his biographer, mean by this? Uh, and there's another passage, in fact, that's been suppressed, that he suppressed from his final edition of The Life of Leonardo da Vinci, where he admits Leonardo was not really a, a Christian believer. Uh, he was more of a philosophical, uh, his religion was philosophical religion. And um, that was suppressed later on because it wasn't uh, edifying and Mazzari wanted to be edifying. But it does seem that Leonardo, um, he must have known what the meaning of the stories was that he was painting. He, uh, he lived in a, in a world that was making art, religious art, and most art in the Renaissance is religious art. So he knows what the stories mean. But he doesn't, he's not, he's not a religious man. And, that, and it comes through in the paintings. So I think paradoxically for us, since most modern people are not religious or they're post-Christian, that uh, he is uh, more available to us that we don't feel we have to master some dogma or that we're being invited to share in a spiritual experience. We're being, we're being invited to look at beautiful people, beautifully painted. Well, as a Renaissance man, Leonardo's scientific studies and inventions can be as popular at, as his art. But you write that all of his engineering projects turned out to be unworkable. Was he not the scientific genius we all think he was? Well, you have to give people some credit for thinking up the idea, even if they don't <laughs> execute. And um, Leonardo uh, was a courtier, an artist. Uh, in the Renaissance, artists were expected to be engineers as well, civil engineers, military engineers. There's a famous early letter of, of Leonardo when he's writing to the Duke of Milan and saying, explaining to the Duke of Milan what he can do for him. And the letter is very surprising to us, the moderns, because we assume that Leonardo is primarily an artist. But this letter uh, describes maybe a dozen different things that Leonardo can do. He can make pontoon bridges, he can make fortifications, he can, he can divert rivers, and so forth. And then at the very end he says, I also paint, <laughs> which is surprising for us. Uh, but... Uh, artists were expected to be men of, 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 uh, of invention. 
and enabled problem solvers. And so Leonardo, uh, he didn't, he was involved in various military and civil engineering projects. So he came up with the ideas, but he didn't, many of them were unworkable. Uh, in the case of diverting the Arno, which he wanted to do at one point, um, that could have worked, but it would have been rather costly and <laughs> involved armies of men and machines and so forth. But, uh, you know, if, just to think of the idea of inventing a flying machine and have some first thoughts on how that might be accomplished, that's really quite an achievement. Mm-hmm. And we can go through his invention. This is what really attracts people when they go to Leonardo shows. They look at these marvelous inventions and they say, well, someone thought this up before modern times. It wasn't all, you know, in the last couple hundred years that people made, uh, thought of making machines that, that can be labor-saving devices or could uh, help you win a war or, or help you um, to uh, build a beautiful city. That's something that people were very interested in the time, making cities beautiful. So uh, I think we have to give a lot of credit to Leonardo's genius. Well, and even today, we can't prevent the flooding in Venice, so no. uh, we shouldn't uh, compare. I'm sure that Leonardo would have come up with an invention to solve that problem. <laughs> yes. I want to ask you about Leonardo's teacher, Verrocchio. You wrote for us about the major Verrocchio exhibition when it was on view at the Palazzo Strozzi in Florence. I, re- I reviewed it for Spectator USA when the show came to Washington's National Gallery, where it now remains on view. Verrocchio has long been overshadowed by Leonardo's genius, and finally I thought he was some justice for the teacher. What did Leonardo learn from this Quattrocento sculptor, painter, and draftsman? Well, Verrocchio, unlike Leonardo, was a great, uh, was a great trainer of apprentices. And uh, it, it was not just Verrocchio, but the, that whole generation of the 1470s, 1460s and 70s, when Leonardo was a young man, they were desperately interested in the imitation of nature, in getting nature right. Uh, because that was part of the aesthetic of the time, that uh, the precision in the representation of nature was a key to, a key to eloquence, a key to making uh, images powerful and uh, images that would interact with the, with the viewer. Uh, so um, it wasn't just, Verrocchio was the, the head of a studio, uh, head of a workshop, um, and he, young Leonardo, was accepted into his workshop. His father got him in, and he obviously was tremendously talented. But he, he learned um, technique from Verrocchio. He went be, way beyond his master, obviously, in terms of sheer technique, but he learned technique from the master. Um, chiaroscuro, which some people attribute to Leonardo as his invention, is something that, some, that the, the, the circle of Verrocchio is trying very hard to do. Uh, portraiture. Uh, sometimes people say that Leonardo invented the, or was the greatest master of the portrait, which um, which revealed the inner life of the subject. You can hear them thinking. And the portrait I mentioned of Cecilia Gallerani before, uh, the poet of the time says, she listens and does not speak. And that's absolutely perfect. When you look at that, you say, that's what she's doing. She's listening. And she's, mm-hmm. she's not prepared to speak, but she's listening. And that, that sort of communication is just extraordinary. But you look at some of the portraits of, uh, that 
that Verrocchio did, and they have, um, I think, an equal uh, psychological subtlety to them. Um, I have, I have to, I don't like to admit this, but I, I like Verrocchio better than Leonardo mm. uh, as an artist to, uh, to, that I can understand and, and uh, be sympathetic with. Unlike his his uh, student Leonardo, he always finished. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he was a, he, he ran a workshop. He had to get things done and on time, and uh, and to specifications of the patron. And he tried to teach these these uh, these, these uh, um, uh, ideas to his these uh, these principles to his young artists. But Leonardo did not <laughs> did not learn this. He, he was, in a way, he suffered from his own success. He, he could get away with a lot mm-hmm. because he was such a fabulous artist. I often think about how creative invention and inventiveness jumped from one medium to another. We'll take Verrocchio. Mm-hmm. At one time, he was best known as a sculptor, yet we know him today mainly for his experiments in fumato or smoky shading. Mm-hmm. As you mentioned, that revolutionized drawing and painting, especially in facial expression. Through his manipulation of plaster and bronze, perhaps Verrocchio saw the potential for rubbing and smoothing shading on paper. Leonardo then took this innovation and used it to model the subtleties in his portraits. Do you think Verrocchio deserves more credit for creating Leonardo and, in fact, influencing paintings like the Mona Lisa? Well, I I think so. I think um, that if you're a sculptor, one of the things you pay a great deal of attention to is the fall of light, the way that light falls over a, a, a molded surface. And this is, I think, the beginning of Leonardo's absolute brilliance at, at painting faces, because he was very interested in optics and the way that light played on surfaces and how, how you, you could make a very smooth transitions. Uh, if you look at some of his drawings, you see that this is incredibly laborious. And, and what he, he often did this with silver point, and his way of shading was to press down slightly harder as he was drawing a straight line. And so the portrait might consist of a series of very fine straight lines which are molded by the pressure of the pen. It's an incredible technique, and, uh, and it's not something that can be done quickly. It, ha- it has to be done very carefully. Uh, one thing I, I was able to see in the Verrocchio ex- exhibition, which I'd never seen before, they had it displayed in the uh, Bargello, uh, uh, in the Sculpture Museum, uh, his greatest sculpture, which is Doubting Thomas. Uh, it's a sculpture that was done for the Mercanzia, uh, which is the tribunal that judged merchant, uh, merchant uh, disputes. So trustworthiness is a, is a key value in the Mercanzia, in the mercantile court. So um, what this portrait shows, uh, I've, always, I've always been able to see the face of Christ from when it was put up before. You can see the face of Christ. You can't see the face of Doubting Thomas at all. But one of the things I thought was absolutely remarkable about this, this sculptor was he's trying to catch Thomas in the moment when his doubt turns to trust. It's an extraordinary thing. And... and uh, he's helped, the way he reinforces the message is he has the body of St. Thomas, uh, Doubting Thomas, wheeling around and about to go on its knees. So you have the, the physical expression of, of, uh, of doubt turning to, to faith or, or um, 
he's, a, he's an arrogant young man whose arrogance is being drained out of him. It's an incredible uh, portrait in the face. And that, to me, is a great example in sculpture of the same values that Leonardo uh, brings to, to painting, the idea that you, you capture the thought. And it's even, in some way, I think, superior to what Leonardo does in the sense that he is capturing a, a change, a, a change in belief uh, on the face of Doubting Thomas. And he's that, that, a beautiful detail of having the, the of having swing around towards Christ. The, the the left hand is putting its its fingers in in the wounds of Christ. The right hand is the right side of the body is falling to its knees. Mm. And that's that's an extraordinary uh, moment. And I, I don't know of any other portrait of Thomas doubting Thomas that comes close to that. Mm. There's a famous one of Caravaggio, which everybody knows, but. Um, that that's, uh, has this moment of, of astonishment, which is wonderful in Caravaggio, but the idea of catching a change of belief, uh, a moment of conversion, that's, that's a fantastic aspiration for an artist. Most artists wouldn't even, would, if they thought of it, wouldn't even, would have no means to do it. And I think this is the supreme moment in Verrocchio's yeah. art. Unfortunately, that sculpture didn't travel to Washington for the DC version of the show. That's because it was at the Louvre. Is that right? The Louvre got it first. Uh, <laughs> uh, the Louvre has all sorts of uh, uh, powers of persuasion that other museums don't have, but that's one of the great things in the Louvre exhibit, which I was not able to write about in the review, was the first room is the Doubting Thomas, uh, this, this, this enormous sculpture, which you could see even better at the Louvre than you could and the Bargello, surrounded by drapery studies of Leonardo and his and his circle, so you could see uh, the uh, the master's drapery and all the students copying or perhaps designing their own drapery mm. uh, for other other similar occasions. So that that was a wonderful kind of depiction of the school of Verrocchio seeking to follow the master, and the case of Leonardo clearly surpassing the master in that particular detail. You conclude your essay by writing that Leonardo's art was less about the objects he created than about himself creating the objects. What do you mean by that? Well, when I write about these Renaissance artists, and this is a product of teaching students for 34 years at Harvard, I like to imagine the person, what the person was like, and how uh, he interacted with the environment. And, I, and if also, it's kind of extraordinary that Leonardo kept his public, despite the fact that he um, that he didn't finish his works of art. Uh, that people still admired him and wanted to have him paint for them. Uh, but one reason I think ex one thing that explains this is having Leonardo paint for you was an experience. It wasn't that about the finished object. If you wanted to have him like Francis, the King Francis I of France, they wanted to have him in the court. So they could walk into his studio and see him at work and talk with him. He's obviously a very engaging speaker. He knew a lot. He was a wonderful observer of nature, uh, and he was a, he was life enhancing, as Bernard Berenson uh, would say. He was a person you wanted to have around. Well, that's right. And you, as you mentioned, he was brilliant on the lute, a sparkling conversationalist, a persuasive pitchman, generous to a fault, and he had a rare capacity to make himself loved by others. 
So was this Renaissance man ultimately our first modern showman? Oh, I don't want to. I don't want to to reduce them that way. A Renaissance man is a category that's really invented by Jakob Burckhardt in the 19th century, and in fact, Renaissance men were trying mostly to be ideal examples of a type. Right? That there was a type of the virtuous prince and the virtuous courtier, and uh, the virtuous advisor of princes. Uh, and m most, the, 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 the education of the time held out these ideal models. The ideal general was another one, the ideal soldier. And that was what the education of the time hoped to accomplish, to, uh, to uh, improve humanity by having them approximate an ideal type. Uh, someone like Leonardo, I think, we, we tend to think of Renaissance man as someone who can do everything. And in fact, I think that's the absolutely wrong way of looking at Leonardo. He's someone who could do very few things as, as a painter, but he did them better than anybody else ever has or ever will do. And he, uh, he certainly offered to do many things. When we think of him and other artists like him, like Leon Battista Alberti, who offered their patrons uh, many skills to put their skills at their, at their um, service, uh, we uh, understand these are people who are trying to get a job in, in, a, in a court. And they have to show that they're useful. They have to show that, that, that the prince can benefit from, from their care and feeding. And that was an expensive proposition uh, for a prince to take on someone in his court. Uh, because one of the principles of Renaissance generosity is that you can't say no. If, if someone gets close to you, the prince cannot say no, because that would mean he would... Be, this is the problem that Henry VII of England had. He kept saying no, and people thought he was cheap. So this is why we have all of the, 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 um, uh, the idea of precedence in Renaissance courts, is to keep petitioners away from the prince, because if they get close to the prince, he has to say yes. So it's, if you take someone into your household, you are really offering to support them uh, in every way they need to achieve their, their goals. So... Uh, you had, on the side of the court here, you had to say, this is all the things I can do, uh, Prince. So that's, I think, where this idea of Renaissance man comes from in Burkhardt. Oh, I want to turn to your new book, Virtue Politics, Soulcraft and Statecraft in Renaissance Italy. For evaluating the new role of the humanities in the Renaissance, Studia Humanitatis, your book has been called a masterwork by Robert Kaplan. What do we get wrong about the Renaissance, and what do you hope to write? Well, the book is about the political theory of the humanists, Renaissance humanists, from Petrarch in the mid-14th century, the great poet, who's also a great, uh, great humanist, great intellectual, uh, to the time of Machiavelli, who, by my reading, is, does not fit into the tradition of humanist virtue politics. So these men were confronted with a world that was falling apart. Uh, they perceived this world as a world that had uh, lost, the men of the time had lost all character. They were evil men. They were cruel men. They were men who could not uh, govern a state well. They, if they were given power, they would turn into tyrants. Or if you had a republic, the republics were ungovernable because of factionalism. The faction, factions would tear the city apart there was no sense of the common good. So the humanist approach to solving this problem was to improve character through the study of the humanities. This is a very old idea. It goes back to antiquity. 
uh, Plato's Republic, much of Plato's Republic, as you probably know, as people know, is um, devoted to the education of the guardians and the philosopher kings who will then rule. Very little of the Republic has to do with laws and constitutions. So um, the humanists, after a period when of high scholasticism, when people tried to solve their political problems by law or constitutions or by theological, uh, religious means, they set out to solve the political problems by improving the character of rulers. And that's where the humanities comes in. Uh, the key move that they make is they say, rulers are not legitimate unless they are virtuous. They make tyranny into something that is a character flaw. It's not breaking the law. It's not absence of title the way the medieval scholastics thought of it. Tyranny for them was bad character, uh, inability, inability to consider the good of other people, selfishness, uh, greed, um, status-seeking. These are all evils of the time. And the humanists thought they could solve these problems. They could revive the great characters of the men of antiquity whom they admired from the pages of Livy and the pages of Plutarch. Uh, they thought they could bring that back through the study of the humanities. And so how would Leonardo factor into this thesis? Well, I've thought about that. I, I think that Leonardo, um, he was not a man of classical education. He had no classical education. He was surrounded by people who did have classical education, so he could not be entirely free of the influence of the classics. And there are a couple works of his uh, which refer to classical subjects. Um, I think that Leonardo belongs more to the the generation of Machiavelli than to the generation of uh, Petrarch and his successors. His virtu, for me, is, his, is Machiavellian virtu. It's the ability to do things. It's the ability to get things done. That's Machiavelli's understanding of virtu, is effectiveness, um, being able to bring it off. And that, I think, is what Leonardo was aiming at and many of his generation. Uh, the, the, Leonardo um, was a middle-aged man when Italy fell apart the second time during the Italian Wars, 1494 and after. That was the period which gave rise to Machiavellian political theory, uh, where Machiavelli and some of his followers simply thought that humanities had been a failure, that humanistic education had been around for 100 years, uh, but when the French came down to invade Italy in 1494, uh, the Italians did not fight. They, they capitulated. And so for Machiavelli, this meant that the humanities were useless, uh, or at least useless as political uh, education. And he wanted to come up with his own idea of how to train a prince, which he does in The Prince, uh, and also his own idea of how to uh, rule a republic, which he does in The Discourses. But Leonardo, I think, belongs to that, that generation which is, simply didn't value the humanities very much. Uh, or perhaps he belonged to a stratum of society that was unable to master the classics. He was, after all, the son of a notary, didn't have much wealth. Uh, and Vasari tells us he wasn't very good at school. That, and so that's why his father sent him to, to be an artist, because he didn't seem to have the, uh, the, the, the determination that's necessary to become a, 
a great humanist. So I think uh, Leonardo ended up doing what he could do. Uh, he, was not, um, he was not a learned artist the way Vasari himself was, for example. Vasari was a humanistically trained artist who uh, realized the imagine, humanist imagination of the past, the idealization of the past, and also the idealization of the Medici family, as we, anyone who's walked around the Palazzo Vecchio will see. Uh, so I, I think that I, I would not actually associate Leonardo with the tradition of virtue mm-hmm. politics. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You have been listening to The New Criterion. I'm James Panero, executive editor. My guest today has been James Hankins, professor of history at Harvard University, founder and general editor of the Itati Renaissance Library, and the author of Virtue Politics, Soulcraft and Statecraft in Renaissance Italy. Being Leonardo, his latest feature for the new Criterion appears in our December 2019 issue. Jim, thank you for joining us. You're very welcome, and thank you for inviting me.